Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, Brian Armstrong on the podcast, CEO, co-founder of Coinbase. What an episode, what a conversation. What were some of your thoughts coming out of that? I really liked the way that we actually structured the podcast. I started talking about Brian the human, Brian with a, the person with the values and visions, and then turned that right into how that turned into a company called Coinbase. You might have heard of it. And then, of course, a number of the things that have gone around in the recent news cycle, Coinbase's fight with the regulators, their new NFT platform, their new NBA and WNBA sponsorships, a lot of things happening in the world of Coinbase, and also a lot of things happening around the world of Coinbase, including banks feeling scared, Mark Zuckerberg turning Facebook into meta. And then, of course, we finished again with the conversation about Brian Armstrong towards the end as a crypto veteran of the 2010s, what he thinks the 2020s will look like and why he seems to be immune from this cycle of founders that create something, get wealthy and get lazy and then get disrupted. That's not Brian. Like he, Coinbase is yet to be disrupted. So what keeps him going? Why, why is he still here fighting this fight? Um, and overall, just a nice look into both the, the person behind the company and also the company itself. Yeah, I love that. And I love, by the way, you just patted uh, ourselves on the back for a brilliantly structured podcast agenda. Flow. <laughs> it wasn't that, David. Like, I, I really do think that it was, a, it was a fantastic conversation. Got to know Brian a bit more, got to understand mm-hmm. Coinbase. That's really what I was looking for out of this conversation is I sort of wanted to um, not explicitly ask the question, but I I sort of wanted to find out, like, is Coinbase going to be the DeFi-friendly exchange, the DeFi-friendly crypto bank, or should we wait for another? Mm -hmm. That was kind of my question going into this. And that that's very much why we started with with values. And I feel like we've got a ton of values. The bankless movement has a lot of values alignment with where Brian was going to go. And the thing that probably impressed me most was his answer when we asked him, when you asked him the question of, hey, Brian, how can we make sure that Coinbase doesn't just become one of the legacy banks that we all hate already, right? Mm-hmm. And his answer mm-hmm. to that was, exactly what I hoped he would say. Um, You know, maybe to his detriment, I guess, like to his own, it it was not the the rational self-interest. It was more the the founder willing to take a risk, like, here's how I hope the world plays out sort of answer. Uh, And I've got a lot of you know, respect for for that type of an answer. So overall, Mm -hmm. this is very bullish, I think, on Coinbase's dedication to the bankless ecosystem, Mm -hmm. the DeFi ecosystem, open, credibly neutral protocols, the things that we care the most about on our program. So yeah, I think you guys will really enjoy this episode in unpacking all of these thoughts. We also talked about, you know, NFTs as well, the new NFT platform. We touched upon the regulatory situation in the US. And guys, let's not forget, Brian has been here since the very early stages too, okay? Before crypto was cool at all. Yeah. Like it was not cool when Brian was trying to build Coinbase at the very beginning. It was not cool. I mean, and so Brian is definitely, uh, you know, some people have called you and I OGs here recently. I've seen that on Twitter. Okay. We are not OGs. Okay. (laughs) Brian Armstrong is an OG. Mm -hmm. All right. This is somebody who's been in the space building from the very inception. The final thing I think I was left with is, um, this is not a trader. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is not somebody who is in this for just the money. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is somebody who is 
a builder right. in the space and cares about builder things. It's a very long-term oriented sort of focus. And I think that's pretty unique. Even if you compare you know, Coinbase to all of the other crypto banks in the world, it's kind of unique. There's a lot of that DNA in the company itself. So anything more that you want to say, David, or should we get right to it? Yeah, there's a, so much more I want to say, especially exactly what you're talking about with why Brian was interested in making sure that he doesn't turn himself or Coinbase into another bank. But We'll have to save that for the debrief. Oh, nice tease. <laughs> where Ryan and I will save. I like that. Yeah, you like that? Where Ryan and I spend 20, 30 minutes just kind of debriefing, unpacking the episode, what were our thoughts about the episode itself. And that goes out to the premium subscribers of Bankless. So if you are a premium subscriber, stay tuned for that debrief. Uh, lots to talk about there. And if you want these debriefs, you can go and sign up for the premium version of the Bankless newsletter where you will get the private RSS feed where you can hear our debriefs every single Monday. And with that, I think we should go right into the conversation with Brian Armstrong, but first a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The era of proof of stake is upon us. Proof-of-stake systems like Ethereum, Terra, and Solana allow the industry to move away from the hot, loud, and wasteful proof-of-work systems and return back to a cottage industry of individual stakers and individual validators. And that is what we need to make this industry stay decentralized. Individuals must play their part in crypto network validation. And that is what Lido is here to do. Lido makes staking accessible to everyone at the click of a button. By delegating your stake to Lido's network of nodes, you can access the yield offered by proof-of-stake systems and claim your share of the network transaction rewards. Do you have 32 ETH and want to stake it to Ethereum, but running a node sounds intimidating? Or maybe you have less than 32 ETH and you need to pool your ETH with others so you can access staking yields. Lido offers a solution for both. Simply go to lido.fi, choose which assets you want to stake, and deposit them to the Lido Validating Network. Lido is working to make sure proof of stake stays as decentralized as possible, and is committed to decentralizing its own validating network to eventually become a completely permissionless protocol. So if you want to stake your ETH, Terra, or Sol, and get liquidity on your stake, go to lido.fi to get started. Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to our next guest. He needs no introduction, though. He's never been on the podcast, but that does not mean he is an unknown figure in crypto. This is Brian Armstrong. He is the CEO and co-founder of Coinbase. Brian, it's fantastic to have you on Bankless. How are you doing, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. I've been a listener for a while and just been very impressed with 
all the content you're putting out there. So thanks for having me. Well, that's awesome. I guess I would say join the Mutual Admiration Club because I've been a Coinbase a customer for quite some time. In fact, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast um, will probably recognize Coinbase as maybe like the first place they actually got into crypto. That was certainly my case. My first Bitcoin buy ever was on Coinbase. And I remember at the time, I didn't really know too much about crypto. I was kind of sketched out by many of the other exchanges out there. And Coinbase really made the experience feel safe, made it feel easy, and it got me over the hump. So I guess I would start by saying, Brian, thanks for building Coinbase, man. Love the product. It's great. Love what you've done with it. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we've helped get hopefully millions more people into crypto, which has helped the whole space. And uh, it's just the beginning. So hopefully, you know, the space just has taken off in a crazy way in the last three, four years since we helped people get a little bit of crypto. And now our, our next big challenge is how do we get people to actually go use that crypto in all kinds of all these all these novel ways and make that just as simple as it was the first time you went to buy it. Yeah, that's super cool. We want to discuss a lot of that. Now, you know, maybe first, let's take you uh, down memory lane a little bit just to talk about how far you've come. So Coinbase, as I understand, it started in 2012 or so. This is relevant news. Not the first time you guys have been top of the charts in terms of the App Store, but you top of the charts last week. Coinbase sitting at number one in the iPhone, Apple iPhone charts. But I want to take you back to like maybe 2013. My friend Dan uh, tweeted this out a while ago, and I just remember reading this. This is a picture of you at a Coinbase booth. And I think you were like single manning the booth maybe (laughs) at a conference, maybe a consensus conference, um, you know, I don't know, nine years ago or so, eight or nine Mm -hmm. years ago. So tell us about the journey, right? So like, I feel like Coinbase has had to get a lot of things right in order to get from this single person booth to number one in the app store. So number one, you have to be in the right place right? Like, which is, you know, crypto. So you had to be right on that. You also had to uh, have kind of the the timing right about things. Um, and then you also had to, to execute. So take us from maybe all the way back here to now where you are. How did all of this happen, Brian? Yeah. Well, first of all, there, there, so there was three of us there. It was myself, Fred Ursum, and then Olaf Carlson, we you can see on the left there in the gray T-shirt. Oh, is that uh, Olaf right there? Yeah, he later went on to found <laughs> per, uh, Polychain, and um, so it was just us three. That we were the only three employees at the company. Um, those gray T-shirts we were giving away there, you know, was some kind of terrible uh, design, probably that I threw together at the last minute. Um, got you know probably off ninety nine designs or something like that. <laughs> and if anybody still has one of those, actually, it'd be funny to post like on Twitter. They're they're probably collectors' items now, but. Um, you know, it was a very scrappy operation. As you can see, we had just a couple t-shirts in a little booth. Um, most of the companies who were at that, that original uh, Bitcoin conference, you know, don't exist anymore, but the people are still around in some way, shape or form. And so it was like, it was, it felt like um, the chaos computer club. If you think about the early days of like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And, and anyway, it had a very kind of, um, <laughs> you know, kind of altered vibe to it that was um, a little weird, but it was very cool. And so how did we get from there to here? I mean, so many steps along the way. I mean, basically we just, we, we were three people at that time just trying to make something that customers wanted. And the original idea that I had for Coinbase was when I first read the Bitcoin white paper, I was like, hey, this is, this is, about, this is cool. It's about, kind of like the internet. It's a, it's a new global decentralized protocol for moving information, or not just for moving information around, but for moving value around. And as somebody who had studied economics and computer science and was kind of excited about creating more freedom in the world, that really caught my attention. And so 
the first thing I could do, I thought to do was the only thing I could think of to do was, all right, well, this technology is really cool, but how do we make it easier to use? So why don't I make a really simple hosted Bitcoin wallet? That was the very first idea I had. And I, my, my analogy at that time was like, kind of like GitHub, you know, is a very simple way to use Git or Gmail is a simple way to use email. It's all hosted. It's in the cloud. So you don't have to worry about security and backups. And I had this thought like, you know, someone's probably going to make a Bitcoin company like that like the Gmail for Bitcoin. <laughs> and I started tinkering around with it on nights and weekends and applied to Y Combinator. And so suddenly we had a little bit of seed funding. We had two employees and here I was at this conference. So, you know, right around that time, uh, we really didn't have any traction. We had no users. Um, I called people who had, who would sign up for the site. You know, I'd post a link on Reddit or somewhere like that. Hey, come check out this Bitcoin wallet I'm making. And some people would sign up, but they would never really come back and use, keep using the product. And so I called a couple of the people who had signed up. I actually, I just emailed them and said, Hey, I built this app. Can you, can I get on the phone with you? And I remember asking them, um, you know, why didn't you come back? And, and people said, well, I love, I thought it was pretty good, but like, I don't really have any Bitcoin. And so I didn't have any Bitcoin to put it, to put in the wallet. And I remember asking them at one point, a little light bulb went off and I was like, well, if we put a simple buy button in there with that, would you have bought some? And, and they're like, yeah, probably. Um, Cause it's kind of hard to get. And so that led us on a bit of a journey to go get a bank integration and figure out some compliance stuff and integrate with an exchange and eventually made a very simple buy button. And from that moment, Coinbase started to really grow quickly. And it actually got to a place where we were not pushing the boulder up the hill every day. The boulder started to roll down the hill and we started to chase after it as fast as we could, you know, with customer support inquiries and keeping the website up and getting enough working capital into the business to keep it running. So that was how it got started. <laughs> I'll pause there because there's a million other things to get to where we are today. But um, that was the beginning. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about a lot of those dots and like where we are today and also where you're going. But like, I'm also curious about this thread because this is also, I think, a conversation a little bit about about you, Brian, like, you know, why you founded Coinbase and, and the reasons for it and the values, your DNA that's kind of imbued in the company. One thing that's interesting about that story is so Olaf was at the booth, you know, Fred was at the booth. They have both gone on to fund incredibly successful firms in the investing space, like funds in and of themselves, which is absolutely fantastic. You've stayed at Coinbase, though, and you've continued to build. So I guess my question is, like, why did you start the thing in the first place and what's made you stay? Yeah, great question. So I think the thing that made me start it in the first place was that I... I read the Bitcoin white paper in like December of 2010, and it, it basically captured my attention in a really profound way. It, I remember having this thought like, wow, this might be the most important thing I've read in, in five, 10 years. And the reason that that happened was a few things. One was that I was always very passionate about this concept of economic freedom. You know, I had, I had studied a bit of economics. I had read some Ayn Rand. You know, I was like very passionate about this idea of like, if we give people basic the, the ability to keep the upsides of their of their labor and made the global financial system more efficient in terms of how people, you know, generate wealth, keep wealth, have a stable currency. How do they participate in global trade? Property rights. How can we make that? And I was like, that that seems like this kind of secret hiding in plain sight. That like, what if the world had just better financial infrastructure and property rights, and we were able to somehow inject that into all these countries around the world? So I hadn't quite phrased it like that in my head, but that was sort of the inkling. Um, that I had at that time where I was really excited about it. And then the other thing was that 
I had always felt like I had been born a little bit too late to really start a great internet company um, <laughs> because the internet was coming of age as I was in high school and whatnot. And by the time I graduated, there was like, you know, there was Google and Amazon and PayPal and all these things. And I, it sounds very silly now to say, but at the time I was like, man, maybe how often does an invention like the internet really come along? I wish I had been there in the formative stages of the internet to start one of the, the early internet companies. That would have been so cool. And so when I saw the Bitcoin white paper, I was like, this sound, this is like maybe the next internet, you know? And I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Even in high school, I was starting little things with my friends. Um, most of them were not very successful, but the Bitcoin white paper was this moment where I was like, all right, I might be crazy. My friends all think this is kind of silly, um, but I want to start something that's impactful and has, has, an, has an impact on the world. And this feels like it might be the next big thing. And it fits just, it just aligns with my values. Like I want I want there to be more economic freedom in the world. So this could be the kind of thing that I could get into for like 10, 20 years or more. So then you asked, I guess, why am I still here? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's fun. I mean, not every day is fun, right? There's parts of it that suck. Uh, but um, for the most part, it's fun because it, it scratches an itch for me, which is I like learning new things and being the CEO of a company is like always pushing you outside your comfort zone to some new challenge. I also love building things with technology. That's kind of one of my great passions in life as a, you know, I studied as a computer scientist or as a software engineer. Um, and I just, I just love building things with technology as a way to improve the world. Like that's, I, even if, um, you know, I retired or I was like stuck in a cabin by myself in the woods for like 10 years, I probably would just try to build things. That's like who I am. And so it scratches that itch. And it basically, as Coinbase grows, we have more and more resources and people to try bigger and bigger things, to try more ambitious things, to try um, more impactful things. You know, I, I want us to eventually get to be having a billion people accessing this open financial system through our products every day. And that's fun. So uh, as long as it's fun, I, I don't see myself changing on that dimension. Um, but I'm really happy also for a lot of the early people at Coinbase, including Fred and Olaf and, and dozens of others who went on to start crypto investment funds, other companies in the space. Like one, one of the things I'm really proud of is that Coinbase has spawned a lot of startups in the crypto space. And um, that to me felt feels like, okay, we had this nexus of culture in the very, very early days, which helped educate a lot of people about this. And then they went on to do even greater things. And that's, by the way, that's still true today in an even bigger way. We have so many people like Coinbase Ventures is our investment arm. We made like 47 investments in the last quarter, like in the last three months of people starting crypto companies. And a lot of those were like connected to Coinbase or former employees of Coinbase. So I feel like the ecosystem is just in the very early days. It's it's just, you know, hopefully the Coinbase mafia keeps growing out there. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, we've spoken to a number of members of the Coinbase mafia. I guess Antonio, the founder of DYDX, mm -hmm. maybe most recently, mm -hmm. but uh, you guys are definitely, uh, you know, spreading. Um, I'm curious about values, right? So you mentioned sort of the feel of like circa 20. 13 in crypto, where it felt sort of homebrew compute club, sort of felt like very chaotic and very interesting. Yeah, sorry, homebrew, that was the name of it. The chaos is something else. It's a security yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to ask a question about like, so I think people come to crypto for different reasons, right? In like Bankless, we often class, we, there's tourists, there's sort of mercenaries, and then there's like settlers, right? And some people are here for the money. Some people are here for the tech, hard problems, that sort of thing. And some people are here for the values, right? And I'm curious to hear because I think you can really plot the trajectory of an individual based on the reason that they're actually here. 
I recall reading an interview, I think this was Forbes, of um, an exchange founder. This was a recent Forbes article in October. And the interviewer asked him the questions like, hey, if you could abandon crypto and just trade like orange juice futures, you know, would you do it? And uh, his answer was yes, mm. right? Like, I'm kind of here for the money, right? Now, I want to give that money to philanthropic causes, I believe in altruism, but I'm not actually here for crypto values. So I'm curious, when it comes to Brian Armstrong as like the reason you're in crypto and you had to rate money, tech, and values, which comes first on your list? Mm. Yeah, so I think it started with values for me. Um, I love the I love the tech also. I mean, look, money is money is great. I think that it gets a bad name. People think, oh, well, it's just profit driven. I, you know, I'm a capitalist at heart. I think pro- probably a contrarian view, even in today's climate. But I think capitalism is a force for good for the world. And um, if you accumulate capital, you can do even better things to improve the world. So I don't want to shy away from capital at all. But the thing that that certainly got me excited about crypto in the first place was the values. It was really this idea that. Um, I, it just never made sense to me. Like, why does every country have some small number of people with their fingers on the dials manipulating the currency? That seems like a huge conflict of interest, especially since we got off the gold standard in the 1970s with Nixon and all that. And actually, I spent a year living in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 2009, and I got to see firsthand what it looks like a country that had gone through hyperinflation, where um, it was not just a little bit of an issue. It was like, it was a massive issue. And inflation is like this really insidious thing because it actually erodes wealth from the poorest people in society. Like, you know, wealthy people can buy assets that adjust for inflation, like real estate that's that's guaranteed scarcity, or they can buy stocks or whatever. But poor people are holding their money in cash. And it's really like a tax on the poorest people in society. So it's this completely unethical thing. Um, it's hiding in plain sight. Like most people in the world don't really quite understand or appreciate what it is because they've never lived in a higher inflation country, like outside the US. Um, although, frankly, you know, the US may be in danger of becoming a higher inflation country here, which is something we could talk about too. But um, that was something, you know, I also I had worked at Airbnb as an engineer, and they were they were trying to move um, money into and out of 180 countries around the world uh, for the for their business. And I got to see just how inefficient it was. And if you compare it to things that we know of and use in tech, like email or WhatsApp or web pages or whatever, you know, if you send a WhatsApp message, it, it goes anywhere in the world. It doesn't care what country you're in. Um, not every country is using their own proprietary messaging system. You know, that that would just be silly. Um, there's not a tax at the border when it, when it crosses. And it, and it arrives instantly, right? But money is not like that. It's like every country of the world has their own proprietary system. It's like not super interoperable with the other countries. There's a high fee whenever you move the money. There's also delays. And so I just think of it as this huge unnecessary friction uh, on the world economy which is how money moves and how it, everybody's on a proprietary system. Usually there's a couple oligopoly players in each market who um, control payments into and out. And there's a lot of corruption too. It's just like in a lot of countries, you know, they, they're not issuing bank licenses anymore. Like you need to be the cousin of the president or whatever, or bribe somebody to actually get a bank license in a lot of countries. And so this corruption basically just hurts the idea of good property rights and a well-functioning economy. And it just I experienced it as an entrepreneur. I experienced it at Airbnb. I experienced it while living in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And so I had just like kind of felt it viscerally that this was unfair, you know? And so um, that's what got me excited about crypto. I was never really a trader or anything like that, to be honest. I was more of like a tech guy. Um, 
I still to this day, like we have, we have a huge institutional business and I go to Wall Street and I talk to all these firms that are onboarding and now like big institutional traditional players are all moving a bunch of money into crypto. And frankly, it's, they speak like a different language. I'm still like trying to learn the language after, you know, many, many, many years. And I have a bunch of amazing people on our team who come from that world and are able to grow that part of our business. But um, I, yeah, I, I don't really actively trade crypto either. I just, I buy and hold. Um, you know, I, I'm in the camp of like, I, I never really want to sell Bit, uh, Bitcoin or, or other crypto that I own, like, unless I need to buy something um, specific. So I, I feel like this is the future of the financial system. Um, I think in 20 years, it'll be a substantial portion of global GDP. And I'm just, I'm in it to create more freedom. That's that's what I'm all about. So there's no Brian Armstrong meme coin uh, portfolio, degen portfolio out there then. <laughs> You're a buy and hold guy. Uh, no, I mean, look, there's a lot. Of, I actually, one thing that kind of bugs me about the crypto industry at times is like, I do think there's too much focus on like short-term thinking and get rich quick and all that, like the, the Lambos and all that. I think it's, I think it's unhealthy um, because first of all, a lot of people are just going to get in for the wrong reasons and then something's going to crash and they're going to lose money. And that's not good for any of us. That That's what really pisses off regulators and people like that is they come in, Hey, this consumers aren't being protected. Right. So I've always tried to think of this as long-term thinking. How do we ensure that consumers have appropriate disclosures? How are they making you know, well-informed choices? Like, dollar cost in average in with a small amount of your net worth and hold for the long term. And how do you, it's not really about the speculation too. It's about how do we actually use this stuff for more and more parts of the economy? Because as we get more and more people actually using crypto, everything else makes sense. It's no longer, it's no longer speculation. And the good news is that that's finally happening. I can't, I can't tell you how many years I would go to conferences and people would ask me these questions like, so when, when are the use cases coming? You know? And like nobody asked me that question anymore. <laughs> it's like t- tens of millions of people in the United States alone, and not mention the world, are using crypto for a lot of stuff now. So I feel like that ship has sailed, which is really good. Brian, one of the themes we like to explore the most on Bankless is how the values of the person impacts the things that they create, whether that's networks or companies in, in your case. And so how have your values that you've learned throughout your time in Argentina and, and you know, just being a human in this world, how has that come to impact the drive and the vision of Coinbase? Because Coinbase is very famously a tunnel vision company, as in they have the future of the world that they want to see manifest and then have that you know future version actually being manifested. So how have your values come to become instantiated inside of Coinbase? And then what are Coinbase's values if they all are different than yours? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I think actually companies really demonstrate the values of the founders. Um, it's not, not all companies have founding CEOs still because they they move on some, sometimes. But really, especially in startups and any company that still has a founding CEO, there's a, there's a very direct link often to the values of that person. I think that's true in our case as well. <clears throat> so one of those examples of our of our values, and by the way, you can look up online. We, we, we used to distinguish these are our values. These are This is our culture doc. <clears throat> I eventually just combined those. And so now we call it just our culture doc. You can, if, you go, if you Google Coinbase culture, you can find um, a list of them. <clears throat> but some of the areas, I'll just talk about how those manifest in, inside the company. So one of them is this idea of long-term thinking and just not cutting corners. So we, we really try to be the most trusted brand in the space. That means focusing on cybersecurity. It means focusing on um, compliance, proactively working with regulators. It means not trying to like add every um, coin under the sun. We, we were very thoughtful about like doing rigorous analysis about uh, securities laws and 
compliance and, and all this kind of stuff. By the way, to our own detriment, there sometimes there was there was times where I, I would have said, oh, man, can't we just make everything available and let the market decide and we'd have more innovation? But you know, we do want to create trust. And so it's always, I think, you know, taking the balance of those. Other stuff that came from me, so I I love efficient execution. Uh, I love it when um, companies get rid of bureaucracy. Um, people get a lot of high quality work done quickly. They do that in a bunch of ways. They do it by not letting a bunch of tech debt accumulate. They do it by having really clear communication. Like one thing you'll notice if you come to Coinbase is almost everybody is a very clear and concise communicator. I'm kind of obsessive about that. <laughs> um, I also love this idea of companies. Companies really are, are only as good as their products and the products come from the people that are there. And so we try, we have this idea of like championship team at Coinbase. We try to just only hire people where we're a hell yes. You know, it's not like if you're not a hell yes, you're a no in terms of hiring. I mean, there's a bunch of others, but one, one last one I'll mention is that I really love this idea of continuous um, or repeatable innovation. And so a lot of companies, I think they, they get one product to work and they have, they're kind of a one hit wonder and they're like, okay, let's just scale that thing. And I really wanted Coinbase to be a multi-product company that kept building new stuff. I was very inspired by like Google and Amazon in this regard. And so what we do is um, we take 10% of our resources and we put it towards venture bets or like moonshot type bets. And so a lot of the, a lot of things have come out of that, like um, Coinbase Wallet, our self-custodial wallet came out of that, Coinbase Commerce, we're launching our NFT thing next. And so I never want us to be a company that kind of gets complacent and rests on our laurels and says, oh, we're so great because this thing is growing around the world. It's like, no, technology always moves faster and there's always going to be some new thing on the horizon that's going to come disrupt us. So let's always be building the future, you know, with 10% of our resources while we're putting the rest towards more adjacent bets or the existing core infrastructure. You don't want to neglect that either. Um, so those are some of the values that have crept in that it kind of came from, from me and uh, the early folks. One of the hard things about coming to understand how this industry works and what it is for people who are just learning about it is that the definitions and lines around crypto are very, very blurred. Like, is it a security? Is it a commodity? Uh, and that's not just a conversation about the assets, but also about the companies inside of the space as well. And so I want to ask, with the vision of Coinbase now like kind of you know, in the listener's head, what does Coinbase want to be when it grows up in the next five, 10 years? Because is it a bank? Is it, is it a tech company? Like now you guys have this NFT platform. You would never see a bank have an NFT platform. And so like, what is Coinbase? What is it trying to aspire to be when it is in its, you know, maximally successful version of itself? Yeah. Yeah. So I think of it as a spectrum, you know, there's like, there's financial service companies on the left, like like banks. And then there's tech companies to the right of that. And then if you go even further, there's crypto companies. I think crypto companies are like the next evolution of tech companies. And so we, we want to be a crypto company. Um, I'd rather be a tech company than a financial service company, but I'd rather be a crypto company <laughs> than, a, than a tech company. And I think the best tech companies are going to all become crypto companies. So in your mind, Brian, this is like an evolution, right? It's like bank, tech company, crypto is kind of along an evolution. You don't see Coinbase as being somewhat in between a bank and a financial company. You see it being sort of this third thing, this more evolved state. Is that right? Yes. And that, I should be clear, that's aspirational, mm. right? So I don't think we're fully there yet, but that's where I want us to keep going. I want us to keep decentralizing Coinbase, embracing decentralization like self-custody and DeFi and smart contracts and all this stuff. Now, this is this gets complicated, so I'll, I'll give you another layer on this, right? So our core business today 
which generates most of our revenue, is a regulated financial service business. Mm. <laughs> so how, how can these things be compatible? Well, the way I think of it is that, um, you know, to get all the fiat money into, in the world, into crypto, into this new crypto economy, we, we have to build a reliable bridge between uh, that finance 1.0 and finance 2.0, right? So that, may, that means we have to go work with regulators. We have to go work with traditional bank partners. Um, you know, I, I don't have any aspirations of Coinbase ever becoming a bank, but even let's just say someday, hypothetically in the future, you know, we, we may even have to own a bank for some reason, right? Because the regulatory environment sort of catches up and it decides that that's required. And maybe we have some subsidiary that's a bank or something, but we try to, honestly, we would even try to kind of cordon it off from a culture point of view, because I don't want that type of thinking to permeate the entire organization. And so even while we're helping build the bridge from finance 1.0 to 2.0 and get all the more and more fiat money into crypto, we also want to be building the crypto economy. And so that means embracing more of the decentralization piece. And so like a very rough analogy I'll make is that, you know, Google makes most of its revenue from ads, right? AdWords. But it's, I don't really think of it as an ad company because they're making self-driving cars and Android and Google Chrome. And like, so sometimes you have a really great business model that is difficult to do something and it, it generates a lot of revenue. But I want to be a company that uses that revenue to help build the future and not get too caught up in being um, in the old world, if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the things I want to learn from this is crypto is evolving just as fast as anything these days. And so do the companies that are inside of crypto need to keep up with the rate of crypto change in order to stay alive with the industry. So I want to hear about the product vision for Coinbase as it relates to so many different things about crypto. And so what is Coinbase's product roadmap, product vision? You guys are now uh, you know, going headfirst into NFTs. Uh, you recently had this Lend product, which we'll talk about later during the regulatory session. Uh, so the products that are coming online out of Coinbase, uh, what is the theme of them and what's the vision behind that? Yeah. So I'll break it down into three parts because we actually have three different customer segments now um, as a multi-product company. So the first customer segment is indiv individual people, retail investors, if you will. The second one is institutions or businesses that are companies. The third one is developers. Uh, which, so let me, let me just talk about each of those briefly. So the first one on, on this retail side our, our product strategy is to be the primary financial account in, in the crypto economy. So that means we're the primary place where you store your crypto, but also increasingly you can connect more and more things into that primary financial account. So you can do borrowing and lending, or you can have Coinbase Card or Coinbase Earn. And um, in the near future, you can even connect third-party applications, like any kind of DeFi app or whatever, um, into that primary financial account. And it's, it's like, yeah, it's the place where you store all your stuff, but you can also use a lot of things through the primary financial account. The second customer segment, these institutions or businesses out there that are now increasingly getting into the crypto space, um, for most of them, they have the, you know, we also want to be the primary financial account, but it's it looks different. It's We have to be a qualified custodian. Uh, we need to be a prime brokerage. They want to do massive like o OTC trades or have different kind of security audit requirements. And so um, we're also the primary financial account for them, but the products look very different. In the third customer segment, um, these developers, this is where we want to be a, kind of more like AWS for crypto. So we're taking a lot of the services that we've built out internally at Coinbase, which power our products, like how we talk to all these different blockchains, how we custody, how we trade, how we do staking, and even identity and logins and stuff. And we're 
exposing those through these services via Coinbase Cloud. That's that's our product for developers. And so what we hope is that that can be sort of a tool that you know thousands of other crypto companies or non-crypto companies can use to integrate um, into the crypto economy. And they, they don't have to store the crypto with us. They could be doing a self-custodial wallet built on top of that, or they could be um, building their own custody, or it could be like, you know, Reddit has like these uh, kind of a wallet now with these different tokens and different subreddits. So I think in the future, most startups are going to use crypto in some way, shape, or form. A lot of big companies like banks and whatnot are trying to figure out how to integrate crypto into their products. And they don't all need to come directly to Coinbase. Hopefully, they can also use Coinbase Cloud to build a lot of that stuff. So that's a, that's a lot of the stuff on our, our roadmap. Um, we're also doing a lot of international expansion, by the way. Um, so we're trying to get more and more global coverage. Um, and we're trying to do this, uh, that the 10% venture bets I mentioned with the repeatable innovation to build cool new stuff that it all plugs into the primary financial account. That's so interesting. So retail, institutional, and then developer. And I wonder how that changes as you move from kind of a, a financial services type crypto company to a fully fledged crypto company. I wonder if those segments change in the future, but you could keep us updated. I think one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, Brian, is um, because Coinbase has a, just a tremendous amount of influence in the space now. And that's, you know, hats off to you. It's because of the fantastic product that you've built. I think 60 million, some accounts. So with that influence, I think comes some power, some amount of leverage in the industry, some amount of power. And so one of the questions I think Bankless listeners have is, okay, what's Coinbase going to do next? How do they see the world? Because they can not only partake in the ecosystem, but they can actually influence it in different ways. So I want to understand a bit more how Coinbase sees the world. And I want to take this in like maybe three parts. Um, first, Coinbase relationship with DeFi, and then talking about Coinbase relationship with the existing banking system. So legacy banks, we might call them. And then third, Coinbase's relationship to, uh, to the big tech companies of the world, right? So those three parts in your mind. But, but let's start with DeFi, okay? So what's interesting about Coinbase's vision and about DeFi's vision is um, some of the visions are kind of complementary, right? So you mentioned being able to do things in crypto, like lending, like staking, like borrowing, like trading, right? There are ways to do that inside of a Coinbase in maybe DeFi advocates would say in a more centralized way. There's also ways to do this inside of the DeFi ecosystem. And so some people ask the question, okay, is DeFi and Coinbase, are they competing then? Are they competing for liquidity? Are they competing for customers? Um, the bankless take on this, by the way, Brian, is actually these are just open protocols that the Coinbases of the world can build on top of. We have this thesis, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called the DeFi mullet, where we think like they'll be kind of banking in the front and then like DeFi in the back for a lot of organizations. But I want to hear how Coinbase thinks about DeFi. Is DeFi a friend? Is it a competitor? Is it some mix of both? What's your take? Yeah, so I think DeFi is unequivocally a friend. Um, it's been, I think it's been clear for a couple of years now that DeFi is something really important that a lot of customers want to use. And so um, it's, I think it would be a huge mistake for us at Coinbase to say, well, you know, centralized is the only way, built products built by Coinbase or something, you know, that, that just wouldn't make sense. We have to go where, if customers are telling us they want to use this stuff, then we've got to make it easy for them to do it. Otherwise, we're just not relevant, right? And so, yeah, we're, we're definitely on a path to um, integrate some more of these DeFi services. So, you know, in, in Coinbase, the custodial app, which is the main one that most people use today, 
Um, we, we are making more and more DeFi services available there. And I think your mullet is a good analogy. Like there could be a very simple interface that, you know, maybe the average person doesn't even know they're using DeFi, but behind the scenes, it's using those protocols. And that just gives them more, you know, more functionality, more assets to trade, whatever it is. Now, I think we also have Coinbase Wallet, which is our self-custodial app, which by the way, has grown like something like 3X in the last year. Um, and so that's another option where, uh, we can have people access the whole world of DeFi through um, an interface where they even have full control of the custody itself. And there's a, there's a whole kind of, um, I think, healthy tension or something like that between uh, the, the Coinbase custodial app, which um, you know is regulated as a financial service business, and the self-custodial wallet, which is really regulated more like a software business because we're never taking possession of any customer funds. We're not executing any trades. And there's still a lot of... Um, I would say legal precedent that needs to be worked out probably in the coming years about that, but that's that's an interesting divergence that's happening. And Coinbase is really committed to serving both. Um, so Coinbase custodial, self custodial, both are important parts of this primary financial account strategy, and they're both going to have access to DeFi. So Brian, the recent Lend product, which unfortunately got halted to, uh, thanks to the SEC, was that a DeFi mullet model? Was that a Coinbase in the front and DeFi in the back? Or where was the yield for that product going to come from? No, so that was a centralized model. Okay. And um, you know, that was that was just a very interesting moment to touch on that briefly, if you want. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had reached out to the SEC a number of times um, as we were developing that product. And some of our competitors in the market had kind of had a product like that for one or even two years live in the market. And so we felt like, you know, we should be able to launch it too. We didn't really hear any objections. And then it came down to it really like just in the last couple of weeks before we were about to launch, the SEC came back and said, under no circumstances should you launch this. In fact, they even sent us a Wells notice, which is <laughs> kind of an intention uh, to sue over it. And you know, that didn't feel very good because I felt like we'd been pretty upfront with them about it. And part of the mission of the SEC is to create a fair market out there. And it didn't seem very fair to me that other companies could do it and Coinbase couldn't. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a reasonable explanation for that, which is basically that they have limited staff and they're just, they can't possibly cover everything out there in the market. So this Coinbase is a public company. We're a bigger company. So when we, when we went to go do it, then they, it kind of got increasing attention. They're probably also doing things with other companies and it just hadn't come out publicly yet. So I don't fault them too much for it, but it certainly didn't feel good. It was really demoralizing for the team who had just spent all this time trying to create this product. And I think it would have been really good for consumers too. That everybody wants to earn yield on their assets. Like you, the you know the interest you can earn at your bank right now is just kind of a pit a, a tiny amount. So um, anyway, that was a centralized product. We ultimately decided not to launch it because the SEC was telling us they were going to sue us. Which we always go talk to our lawyers when these things happen, and and they kind of told us you know it's like a 50-50. In, if this goes to court, the law is pretty unclear. Um, it's like you, you might 50% chance you win. I'd rather take like an 80-20 <laughs> if, if we're going to go to court. If you're going to sue your, you know, one of your regulators, which I, which I hate to do. Um, so we ultimately decided not to launch it. And I, I really hope the SEC kind of both makes these rules more clear because, frankly, the, the lawyers advising crypto companies are telling them it's a toss-up, 50-50. That's, that's not helping anybody. So we, we just want clear rules and for them to enforce it evenly with everybody, which I think they'll eventually get to do. Um, 
But yeah, that, that's what happened in that situation. Yeah, I feel like the story is very much not fully written. I think we'll uh, be hearing more about that soon. And we've got a lot to cover about the SEC when we uh, get to regulatory. But, you know, uh, keeping, I guess, on this theme of um, you said Coinbase very much sees DeFi as a friend, right? So Coinbase is kind of a DeFi friendly crypto company uh, very much. Do you think this strategy is different than those that maybe you Coinbase's traditional competitors might be pursuing. So I think of um, somebody like a, a Binance, for example, right? And so CZ has coined this term CDFI, right? Which is like centralized DeFi. And Binance has created this thing, which is a you know fork of Ethereum called the Binance Chain. Uh, it has a very small set of validators, mostly controlled by um, Binance and company, right? And so it's this centralized DeFi amalgamation. FTX is a little bit different. It feels very much, and these are not your words, these are our words, right? It feels very much like they are pursuing a similar strategy of control as Binance Chain, though maybe not as explicit through maybe a chain like Solana, for example. So maybe there's sort of this veil of decentralization, but maybe they have a bit more influence and control over something like Solana than they would over something like Ethereum. And so we've got Binance putting its stake in the ground. This is how we're going to do DeFi. It's called Binance Chain, right? And like Binance is sort of the center of the universe. We have FTX doing maybe kind of this blend where it's playing in both camps, but it also still really wants to control this DeFi thing. And now I almost feel like it's like Coinbase. It's your move, guys. Like, what are you guys going to do in this space? And that's what I'm most curious about in this conversation is like, what is Coinbase's move going to be? Are you going to take a roll your own smart contract platform approach? Are you going to adopt uh, a specific smart contract platform? Are you going to open, are you going to pick the most open, credibly neutral, decentralized technologies? How do you think about this? And what's your strategy here? Yeah, great question. So, you know, <laughs> I hadn't heard that term CD5, but it, it, it kind of makes sense. And by the way, I think, you know, CZ and Sam are, are great entrepreneurs and nothing but good things to say about them. So let me, let me start with that. Um, you know, I, I had some conversations with CZ about BNB, and I think on the one hand, it's really smart what they did to get more scalability out of it, right? Because um, scalability is one of the biggest things holding back the adoption of other chains. I think, like like Ethereum, and I know they're working on it with a lot of a lot of efforts. But it's important to get more decentralization. So that part of it I thought was smart, but the the centralization of BNB with most of the BNB being controlled by that one company and the validators, as you mentioned, that, that makes me uncomfortable. I think as a developer, that's kind of risky to build your application on something that is controlled too much by, by one company. And so, and, and Solana might be somewhere in the middle. I, I don't know the exact details, right? But yes, I, I agree with you. I think it makes me a little uncomfortable to have it be that, that centralized. Um, so I think what Coinbase, there, by the way, there was moments in the last, like 2018 or around that time frame where there were some engineers at Coinbase who came to me and said, hey, we should build Coinbase chain. And, you know, my reaction was, you know, on the one hand, you could argue it was naive, right? Because, hey, if we had made it, maybe it would have been worth 50 billion or whatever. And it's great, great market cap. But on the other hand, I'm kind of glad we didn't make it because I don't like the idea of there being a Coinbase chain. I like their idea, the idea of the chains being much more decentralized than that. Now, if we also thought about, okay, well, could we help make a more decentralized chain that truly we didn't control and maybe we contribute engineers to it? But whenever we kind of looked at that and we got a little closer to making something, I kind of looked at, I was like, well, that's kind of what the existing chains are doing. I don't know if the world needs another chain at this point. It probably needs 
one or two of them to just keep making progress on their developer roadmap. And so what we did instead is we built a, a team of engineers internally, we called the protocol team, and we're still building it out. It's still a little early, but that's the team that is, their job is basically to go out there and help scale blockchains, not our blockchain, any any of the existing blockchains. So, you know, look, you could argue that Coinbase would have another 50 billion on the market cap or something if we had made our own chain. But I, again, I'm not in it for the, just to like print a bunch of money or something. I, I want this to be adopted globally and last, you know, hundreds, thousands of years as the future of money. And so I don't want us to get too into the centralization of any one chain. So Brian, this protocol team as well, it almost sounds like this team is going to be pouring into and, and pushing out some some public goods. Of course, in like Bitcoin yeah. and Ethereum and the ecosystem, there are all sorts of public goods that don't clearly have a monetization mechanism, but that the entire community relies on. Is that what this protocol team is effectively doing, contributing to open source public goods? Yes, that's correct. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's a little bit like, you know, Google, once they reached a certain size, they had a team working on things like OpenSSL and like these these protocols that the whole internet was built on. And they had benefited enormously from that as a company, so it was kind of a way for them to give back. Um, so anyway, that, that's what we're trying to do with that team. I, I, I do think scalability of these blockchains is a huge unlock for the next, you know, 100 million slash billion people who, who will come into crypto. If we can get another couple orders of magnitude of scalability, with layer two or lightning or any of these things, then um, the future is going to be very, very, very good for all crypto. I'm just curious, like you personally, uh, do you have not an official Coinbase position? I, I expect Coinbase's position is like somewhat uh, chain agnostic, somewhat, you know, you know, kind of neutral, right? But you definitely support open source and decentralized chains. But you personally, Brian, do you care which chain wins here? Like, is there a difference in your mind between an XRP and a Bitcoin or a Binance chain and Ethereum gaining traction? What's uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're trained agnostic as a company, as you said. Um, I, you know, I hate just I hate to get too involved in these because I do think there's a lot of like holy wars in the crypto world. Yes, whereas there I'd rather, are. <laughs> <laughs> as you all know. So I mean, I would rather we all were just a little more cooperative here and just try to help get the whole thing going. Everyone is sort of like shilling their own book a little too much. Um, so, but do I care? I mean, I care. I care that the platform that most crypto gets built on is. It is decentralized. It's developer friendly. It's going to help. It's going to scale. Um, you know, I, I care about stuff like that. I, I think it just will make the whole industry more successful. But I also think that, you know, even though Coinbase is kind of a big company in crypto, it's not like I have. I don't. I don't think I have the hubris to say I could sway it one way or the other. Like the the market is going to tell us what it wants to use, and I think developers are smart. For, by and large, developers are building on top of the systems that have the right properties. And so that's that's where the market's going to go. And I think we're, we're going to be followers there, not really um, helping shape it too much. You know, Brian, sometimes I think people forget that um, developers are economic players as well, right? You talk about this kind of like economic freedom. Well, developers choosing on what platform to develop on, that is a massive vote of confidence, right? They're basically deciding, here's where I'm going to live and like open up my shop. And that is a huge vote of confidence for any any chain or any ecosystem they choose to build on. Yeah. I mean, that's going back to the internet. That's why developers got so excited about the internet was like, why would you want to build your app on some proprietary system where it could just get taken away? People were tired of like, if you built a Microsoft Windows app and it got really successful, Microsoft would just clone it, right? Or actually Microsoft, people forget the history of this, but 
on our board, you know, is Mark Andreessen, who built the first web browser. And uh, he tells us all these funny stories, him and Ben Horowitz, about like in the early days of the Internet, Microsoft actually tried to create their own proprietary Internet. It was called, I think, Microsoft Network. And, um, you know, developers just didn't want to build on it because they're like, Microsoft's just going to steal my app if it gets too big. And so I'm going to build on the open Internet, even though the open Internet was like a little bit rougher around the edges. And it was like kind of really chaos how the protocol got upgraded and everything, just like in crypto today. So anyway, history is kind of repeating in a, in a funny way. Yeah, I totally remember that times. Like as a, an elder millennial, probably probably David does not remember uh, these times, but mm-hmm. like Bill Gates nope. used to talk about the information superhighway yeah. and he would never talk about like the actual internet and like, you know, um, TCP IP and some of those protocols. It was always this like Microsoft type thing. Uh, and then eventually they capitulated in a big way. Right. <laughs> on the complete other side of the same spectrum, uh, we have crypto networks on one side and then banks on the other, where one's maximally decentralized and one's maximally centralized. And Bankless wants Coinbase to eat all the banks. I want to be able to deposit my checks into Coinbase. I want direct deposit, routing numbers, account numbers. And that's hopefully what we see. In the, I don't know if that's actually like you know an explicit vision of Coinbase, but that's my vision of Coinbase. And so at the same time, I also don't want Coinbase to just become another bank. Yep. Uh, and so, Brian, can you ease our minds about like if and when Coinbase does eat all the banks, why should we still be optimistic that Coinbase doesn't turn into the thing that it ate? So, I mean, this is a really interesting trend just in history where um, if you look at the history of all networks, by the way, there's a great book on this called Master Switch. Um, and it talks about like, the you know t- television networks and radio and the telegraph and like it goes back through all the history of these different networks and the history of it is basically when something starts off it's very fragmented there's a lot of upstarts you know the the people operating on this new network like the incumbents kind of laugh at them because it's so unreliable and, and quirky and then eventually the new network you know is the next s curve and it basically starts to consolidate as it gets bigger and there's becomes monopolistic players then they turn evil and then the next network has to come along with it new entrance to come disrupt it right so how by the way every every day every week at coinbase i flip between worrying about oh my god we're like we're so slow and big and there's some new startup that's just going to come eat all of our lunch and then the next week i'm like okay we're going to become too big in crypto and then how do i make sure like somehow it doesn't turn evil <laughs> like somewhere in the in the organization you do that too huh yes exactly mm-hmm. so and there's a funny thing that happens by the way if you ever you know once you found a company that gets beyond, you know, say like three or 400 people, like Dunbar's number is 150 people. So you can imagine once you hit 500, there's people that you've never met inside the company. Right. And so occasionally as a CEO, you, you know, we're about 3000 people today. You, you encounter something in your own company where you're like, how could that have ever happened inside the company I found? <laughs> you know, and oh my so, God, Brian. <laughs> sometimes David and I meet people and we forget they've been on our podcast. Embarrassingly yeah. enough, okay? Yeah, so. exactly. So <laughs> happens. Um, anyway, there's a whole. That's how once you get bigger, you have to kind of really put down in writing and like articulate what are the values in the culture, and then find ways to communicate throughout larger orgs. So it's anyway, it doesn't work for you to meet everybody individually anymore, but. Um, Okay, so getting back to the, your main question. So, yes, I mean, I do think that Coinbase is, we're already seeing people start to use their Coinbase account as an alternative to a bank account. Um, you know, we have Coinbase card, so you can spend at merchants. We, we just launched um, this uh, feature. We put out an announcement about Coinbase uh, payroll and direct deposit and everything, which is coming soon. So there'll be a way to do that. 
Um, but I think the real answer to your question is that more and more of crypto is going to go to self-custody. I actually think that self-custody is probably um, the future, longer term. Um, it might be, you know, some of some institutions and people are probably going to think that's crazy because like they're just getting into crypto into the centralized way, which is what where they're most comfortable. And that'll have a major tailwind behind it for decades to come. But I think at the, the way that, you know, self-custody as it gets safer and safer to store your crypto there without some accident, accidental loss of your coins, uh, maybe there's like social recovery or there's um, multi-sig, multi-party computation type solutions, you know. Basically, the, the apps need to get better, easier to use, safer, and then that's the real um, safeguard against you know Coinbase ever becoming some giant company that starts to look more and more like the banks that it sought to uh, improve upon. And the, the other the other thing is having a founder CEO really helps, right? <laughs> so um, you know I, I'm not good at everything in the world, but one thing I can do at Coinbase is I can help sort of say. Hey, this is why I started the company, and so I can speak with a certain moral authority. It's like we're not going to do that. Why not? Because that's not why I started the company. I don't, I don't have to give any other justification, right? Whereas you can imagine like a professional CEO who comes in who's like accountable to Wall Street quarterly earnings and above. You know, they may start to think about the company differently. Now, that's great. I'm not. I'm not planning to go anywhere. I want to be with Coinbase a long, long time. Eventually, founders do pass away, right? And it's an interesting. It's an interesting question to think about. How do you build a company culture that survives um, a second and a third founding, right? Like Apple after Steve Jobs or, um, you know, Amazon after Bezos or whatever. And I don't know if anybody has solved that problem perfectly, but what a lot of people do is they try to like write a book and really write down their philosophy and their articulation. And then you have to kind of pass the baton to somebody and try to create good long-term incentives for them to actually take risks and try something new and ambitious. Um, you know, this might be get, getting, this is rambling a little bit, but I'll, I'll give you one final thought on this, which is one of the most scarce things in, in companies today is, is actually today is actually risk tolerance, right? So why, you know, why did Tesla launch kind of their self-driving cars and Waymo under Google didn't, right? And, you know, Google was probably ahead on self-driving and they had more money into it and they, they had every advantage and every reason, but they don't still have their self-driving cars really on the road, whereas Tesla has partial self-driving and it's collecting all this information. And the reason is that there was a founder CEO who basically said at a certain point, I care enough about the mission that I think we're ready and we're going to go for it. And I, I guarantee you there was some lawyer or somebody at that moment who was probably telling him, don't do it. It's not ready. If somebody <laughs> dies in the first mm -hmm. week, the company's over. You know, and it's and it's scary. And so if you're a professional CEO, you know, you're thinking about, well, what is my career trajectory and my next job and all these things. But if you're a founder or CEO, you're thinking, if we don't accomplish the mission, what's what's the point? Why did I do all this work? Like, that's the only reason I don't care about my next job. I just want to accomplish the mission. So risk tolerance in a weird way is is a very valuable thing. Um, and I think about that as a founder or CEO. Hopefully that can help us make the right calls as we get bigger and, and avoid becoming becoming the, like the thing that we've sought to improve on. Uh, but ultimately, we're going to have to decentralize so that, you know, can't be evil is better than don't be evil. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just a quick reaction on a lot of things you said there. It's like, I'm actually blown away by something you said there, Brian, because like, so getting back to the last point, a founder CEO is more risk tolerant, I suppose, because something you said in there is pretty risky for Coinbase's core business model, which is you guys custody 
a heck of a lot of assets. And you said that you see crypto moving to a world that is more self-custody. In bankless terms, we would call that less banked and more bankless. Mm -hmm. That is the world. That's the mission that we're on as like a you know crypto thesis-driven media organization. That's the world we want to see. But isn't that against your interests? Like, isn't that against Coinbase's interests to see a world that graduates to self-custody? Can you square that for me? I'm glad you said it, but I'm wondering why. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't you just teaching your consumers how to not need you? <laughs> well, so I think it. you could argue that it works against our interests short term or maybe even medium term, but it's definitely within our interests long term. And the reason is that companies have to evolve, continually be evolving to serve their customers. And if you're not serving your customers, then you're just on a slow path to irrelevance and death, right? And so we always kind of need to meet people where they are. So there's a, there's still a huge number of people in the world who are like, I don't even know about crypto. Like I barely understand it. I think it's some internet money or whatever. And for them, a centralized solution is the thing. And that's gonna be true for, by the way, a decade or two or, or more, maybe forever for some of these people. But you, you two are living in the future, right? And I'm kind of with you. I'm, I'm also thinking about the future. And there's a huge segment today already, but it's going to grow, I think, even bigger, who want to be self-custodial. They want to be self-sovereign. They want to be able to access more and more stuff that that allows. Um, and they, they basically want to live this ethos of like, don't tell me what to do with my own money. You know, it's my money. <laughs> I should be able to I should be able to do whatever I want. So, um, yeah, we it's we're able to hold both of these ideas in our head at the same time, basically build for the future and start to build products for that customer segment while also building these products for probably the majority of the world still, which ha they're not quite that far in their thinking. They're still getting bought into crypto to start with. So we need to make products for both of those markets. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their earn program where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version two has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. 
Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Well, let's talk about this future and kind of the third piece here, which is the, the section of Coinbase versus Facebook, aka Meta, aka Big Tech, right? Right. So the way you've described Coinbase so far actually makes a lot of sense to me in, in that Coinbase's act one is really the bridge. And that's what you guys have excelled on. So you're in this bridge from old world legacy finance to new world, new finance. And it's not just new finance that we're building over here, because if you take the long-term view of what crypto actually is. It's a property rights system, right? It's about economic freedom. So we're actually building this thing. And I feel like maybe crypto started at first, this thing called the metaverse. All right. Mark Zuckerberg, and I think some of the big tech companies want to do something in the metaverse too. I think Mark is a very bright individual. Okay. He sees a lot of things before everyone else does. And so he sees this thing called the metaverse and he wants to build that too. Um, I'm curious about your take on Facebook's announcement of basically pivoting the entire company to be a metaverse company and your take on does Coinbase actually have a role in building out the metaverse as this sort of this third evolution, this crypto company? What do you think all of this means for Coinbase and your strategy moving forward? Yeah, so I think I think Zuck is it was a brilliant move from him for a number of reasons and um, you're correct that the metaverse is something that people have been talking about for a while, and crypto has made a lot of great progress with that. You know, Decentraland and, and all these things, um, NFTs. It's not a coincidence, I think. Going back to our my prior comment about founder CEOs of the Fang companies, the big four or five big tech companies, Facebook is the only one majorly doing something in crypto right now you know both with dm which you could argue is like a little maybe it was the right thing the wrong thing but now with the metaverse they're thinking about crypto you saw probably in his announcement he referenced some nfts and things i think it's not a coincidence he's also the only founder ceo left at, at the fang companies which is um which is an interesting thing but i give him a lot of credit for making this move i think that you know people probably have concerns about facebook being big brother or something and like the privacy concerns and I think Mark Smart, he gets that. You know, you saw he mentioned in his talk that, for instance, you, you know, they're making it so you don't need to sign into Oculus with your Facebook account and and that kind of stuff. But the reason why I think it's it's smart is that number one, of course, Facebook, because it's a social media company and it's disrupted so many business models, and you know, it's it's a mirror of society, both the good and the bad. And so, you know, they have all this pressure about deplatforming and people think they messed up the elections. <laughs> so they're basically, their brand has just been getting so much hate that it, it's, people forget, um, just, it's kind of like basic psychology. Once you have a label for something, you think of it as something in your mind. So he's kind of now saying, hey, Facebook is not just the blue app, whatever that you hate. It's also WhatsApp. It's also Oculus. It's also, you know, Instagram and these other things. And so, I think it's a great move for him just to rebrand and say that the parent company is now about something bigger to get rid of the hate. I also think it's a it's a brilliant move because VR and AR I think is the future of computing. You know, um, when we went from mainframes to desktops to laptops to to mobile, 
And by the way, a bunch of companies like Microsoft kind of missed the move to mobile. I think that, you know, Apple and Google are now sort of missing the move to AR VR. Totally. Um, which is funny because they're the ones you'd think they, they, they saw that how important the transition to mobile was, but now they're missing the next one. So I think it's incredibly ambitious and bold that that suck is they're basically I think they're losing over a billion dollars a year on their on their uh, VR AR Oculus stuff right now. And he's he can see that that's where the future of computing is going. So I, I think that's all brilliant. So what so what role could Coinbase play in this? And not just with Facebook, but all of every version of the metaverse. You know, again, we want to be the primary financial account, right? So we want to be the the place that people store their 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 digital goods and their their currencies. And so we need to make it easy for people to connect their Coinbase account into any version of the metaverse that's out there. And so that's that's what we're going to do. I don't I don't think we would actually go build. Um, you know, like a game or a UI or something like that. But we do want to make it easy for people to store all their stuff in self-custody and, and Coinbase custody if they want that. Yeah, we're going to get to the NFTs, which is maybe a step for Coinbase into the metaverse in, in just a second. But, you know, one other thought I had for you and I wanted to get your take on is so some in crypto see Mark Zuckerberg entering the metaverse and you see that as an attempt to kind of co-opt what crypto is doing, basically centralized and control and, you know, um, you know, become panopticon, the, you know, the surveillance engine. Um, my take is a little bit different. I actually think because of the credible neutrality of the underlying base layer protocols like Bitcoin and Ethereum that we've built, um, Mark will actually, whether he wants to or not, be forced to build on top of it. In the same way, Facebook was forced to build on top of TCPIP and all of the open internet protocols. So, and what, what will he build on top of? The property rights system that crypto offers. So I personally see this move as incredibly bullish for crypto. This is basically, and we've seen moves with Twitter, we've seen it with TikTok as like incorporating NFTs. This is basically Web2 poking their head up and especially, you know, Mark saying, oh my God, we need to get in on this crypto thing. What's, what's your take? Do you think this is overall bullish or bearish on our industry? Is this a, you know, control type? Uh, play, or do you think this is going to? He's going to be forced to build on crypto, whether he likes it or not. I generally am more in the camp that you're in as well. I think it's I think it's very bullish for crypto to see Facebook making such a big bet in metaverse, and I think you're right for them to get user adoption. They're going to have to work, build on top of the open standards and let people have interoperability of their of their digital goods throughout that world and and use the native payment layers. Right now, if there is you know, there may be a temptation for them um, to sort of centralize in some ways, right? And so to the extent that that happens, I would certainly love to see other metaverse companies being built. And, you know, maybe we can all collectively as an industry just make sure that there's interoperability between them because it would, it would really be a bad outcome to have, go back to like, look at just like Microsoft Windows had over like 95% market share or something, and it started to act much more monopolistic. Whereas with mobile, we have Android and iOS, and it's like, there's still some bad behavior, but it's less because there's at least two of them. <laughs> so two is a lot better than one, three is better than two, you know, you kind of go down the line. So I would love to see other companies step up and help make other metaverses. And the crypto community can totally do that. We're, we've seen some of those great companies already, like like Decentraland and others. Um, so I hope they do that. But it's funny you mentioned Twitter. They're doing a lot with crypto too. Another founder CEO still in the job. Totally. So anyway. 
Well, something that I think will really accelerate the development of the metaverse is Coinbase's new NFT platform. So we want to get some details on that. Brian, I think the NFT platform was surprised how many people actually signed up for the thing. I think something like 2 million came within just the first few days. Maybe you could give us an update on the numbers there. So the other details that I'm looking for as well are, well, when's it going to launch? Uh, and also, is it going to be an open system or a closed system when it comes to just users and that, you know, having you know, self-sovereignty and ownership over their NFTs? Can they withdraw the NFTs? Where will the images be stored? Can you just give us the details on the NFT platform? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think there was maybe like 3.5 million in the first couple, three, three days or something. I actually don't know the latest numbers. It's, it kept going up. But um, yeah, so I mean, we're definitely going to be interoperable. Uh, people can connect self-custodial wallets into Coinbase and NFT. You can store it um, using MetaMask or or Coinbase wallet. Um, in the future, we'll probably make it possible so you can just connect your Coinbase custodial wallet as well. If for all the you know 68 million verified users who who have that. Um, so our overall goal is just how do we make everything in crypto just trusted and easy to use, right? So. For a lot of people right now, um, NFTs are getting tons of traction, but it's still relatively hard for the average person to do it. They have to install a Chrome extension, maybe buy some crypto somewhere like Coinbase, but then they have to transfer it to another wallet. Um, you know, there's there's things like signatures that pop up and, and all that. You can't even, like, let's say you don't have any crypto, but you want to buy NFTs because NFTs are bringing in a lot of people who have no experience with crypto whatsoever. You know, it'd be great if they could just put in a credit card, right? It'd be great if they had more social features to it. Um, so hopefully we can provide a lot of that with, with Coinbase NFT and, um, yeah, just make it easier for the next hundred million or people or something to come in and, and, and use NFTs. One thing about the platform that I noticed in the mockups was the social media elements to it. Uh, there were like handles, there were followers and following and, and likes. Is this also a social media play as well? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely borrows elements of that. Right. I think that, um, you could imagine variations of different apps in the NFT space. So there could be things like um, like OpenSea, which is awesome, you know, and it's and it's kind of like a marketplace, um, sort of like Airbnb or eBay or something like that. Uh, but I think people are really love and are familiar with social aspects as well. So if there was a version that was kind of like Instagram that you could see people's profiles, what they own, you could follow them, you could even have like a feed of like the most interesting stuff by the people you follow, but also buy and sell them. That would be pretty cool. So you know, I, by the way, I think there's a lot of other features too. Like I would love to be able to, um, put out like a bounty and have people commission NFTs for like, or make memes or whatever, like around a certain trend that you want to put out there in the world. And, um, there, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we could do. So th those are all just kind of scratching the surface. Part of the cool thing about NFTs, uh, the story of NFTs has been basically mainstream adoption and mainstream interest. And it's just like this whole other cohort whose eyes, when you go to talk to them about crypto, like at a party or like they just glaze over when you start using finance terms or just like, let me tell you about the history of, of <laughs> money and right why we have gold, yeah. right? Like their eyes glaze over, but you show them an NFT Right. And, you know, their favorite crypto celebrity uh, has a or their favorite celebrity has an NFT totally changes the game on this. I wanted to talk a bit about um, maybe mainstreamness of crypto, because I think that's what NFTs really bring us. And you guys have done something pretty damn mainstream, which is you just became the official crypto platform of the NBA and the WNBA. 
uh, which sounds huge. Can you tell us a bit about that? Like, why, why this? What, what is this partnership going to do? And then, like, why is this partnership attractive to both sides? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> I think for a long time, by the way, Coinbase never really did very much traditional marketing. Um, I was, I never really had a marketing background. Frankly, I didn't really understand mar- a lot of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and our occasionally, we'd have board members who'd come to me like, Brian, when are you going to think about marketing? And I'd be like. Well, we're doing like these referral programs. I, I was always into like the traditional growth t- stuff that tech tech companies would do. Mm-hmm. But once we went, so that's why you never sponsored the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should probably we should probably sponsor it. Um, but uh, you know, once we became public, a public company, I was like, all right, let's this this is now the time to really go into this in a big way because it's no longer some niche thing. Like it's it's mainstream enough where we can start to do brand advertising and like more things where enough people in the audience who see it will know and care about crypto that it's actually worth it. Um, th- there's always this risk in marketing that like, especially not, not like um, paid paid marketing or performance marketing, but like brand marketing that's broad, like a TV ad or something that's, that you, it's really hard to measure the ROI of it. And so I wanted to wait until we got big enough. Um, I'll give, by the way, Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX a lot of credit here. He, he went, he went hard into it early. <laughs> and he's doing arenas now in Miami, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Tom Brady. Yeah. So he's he's kind of like been lining up all these celebrities and stuff. And I, you know, mad respect and props to him for doing that. Um, I always try to think about like, what is the most I, a lot of a lot of marketing just comes across like inauthentic to me. Um, and I'm still trying to learn about it, by the way. We have a great chief marketing officer we hired and all these things we're doing now. We're, we're doing tons of experiments. But, you know, it's always this balance. Like you want to take not not just be preaching to the choir of crypto people, right? Who are already super into it. You know, they they already know what Coinbase is. But you want to go kind of what's the re- the rung outside of that, like gamers or the rung outside of that, like artists, you know, doing NFTs or maybe the NBA and people who are into culture and like music and just how do you go one one layer out? But I also feel like a lot of um, marketing that's out there for, that I see for other brands is just it's kind of inauthentic. Like I, it never really made sense to me just because some famous person is using this thing, like, why should I use it? I, I want to use it because it's like a good product or it's innovative or something. Um, I, I never know if I'm like just weird in that regard or if that if marketing comes across inauthentic to most people. <laughs> like, I, 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 don't, I don't actually know. So anyway, we're trying a bunch of experiments. We're doing it hopefully in a way that's, that's really authentic to who we are. Um, you know, we're branching into areas that are outside of the core demographic to get more and more people into it. I think, by the way, this Super Bowl... You're going to see a bunch of crypto ads in this upcoming Super Bowl. It's almost going to be like really? the, crypt- the crypto bowl or something. One which of is, yours? <laughs> which is sort of a sign of the times. Um, but yeah, crypto is going mainstream. So we're going to get all kinds of marketing stuff happening. That's amazing. That's great. Very cool. Brian, Coinbase's external brand and reputation is off the charts. Just everyone associates like almost crypto and Coinbase is almost the same thing. Before they really know what crypto is, they're like, oh, crypto, is that the Coinbase thing? Internal to crypto, the brand is a little bit different and crypto moves very, very fast and Coinbase being the largest company inside of crypto just doesn't really move as fast as crypto does. So the internal to crypto branding is not as stellar as the external to crypto branding. And Brian, and this is where we go from us asking you questions to us making an ask of you. And I think the number one thing that Coinbase can do to just completely accelerate adoption for all of the space, do good for everyone, including their customers, including the internal to crypto branding, is to allow users to withdraw their assets onto layer twos. 
These will, because the layer ones, especially with Ethereum, with the amount of congestion, it's like dropping people off in, like, in the basement of a skyscraper. It's just, it's just a bad user experience, especially when the layer ones are just not meant to be for humans moving forward. It's like dropping them in the middle of Manhattan with no money mm -hmm. to like flag a taxi. <laughs> right. Right. And so I want to ask, what is the rollout plan, if there is one, for allowing users to withdraw and deposit assets onto like Polygon, onto Arbitrum, Optimism, all these layer twos that are actually supposed to be the nice, friendly environments for users to actually begin doing stuff? Yeah. So a thousand percent agree. Thank you for the feedback, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't have anything that I want to announce publicly like today, but just suffice to say, um, the team is thinking exactly how you are, and um, they've been. I've been seeing some really cool stuff internally, but um, hopefully, hopefully, we can share more soon. Cool. It's a great point. Let's talk about regulation for a minute, right? So, I think when crypto people talk about regulation, they're like, "Oh, I thought." In crypto, you guys were making this thing that couldn't be stopped. Why are you so worried about regulation? And my reply is always like, I'm not worried that bad U.S. regulation will kill crypto. I'm worried that bad U.S. regulation will kill the U.S., like actually harm the U.S., Okay, it'll put this country behind. And as a citizen of this country and a resident, mm. you know, I care that the U.S. does not fall behind. Can you give us like a state of U.S. regulation from your perspective? How worried are you about it right now? And like either bad regulation coming down the pike or just this lack of regulatory clarity? Like how are we doing? What's the report card in the US? <laughs> yeah. Well, by the way, I love that phrasing of it. I think you're right. It's not a risk that it harms crypto. It's a risk that it harms the US. And as a US citizen, I agree. I'd, I'd love to see the US not only remain a financial hub, but actually remain on the forefront of all kinds of innovation. That's what's kind of made us strong as a country. So you know, embracing the internet, like all, all kinds of things, as opposed to sort of uh, clamping down on it, which is what we saw happen in China and, and all kinds of things like that. So what's the current state? I mean, look, there's there's a pretty big gap in understanding between um, folks that I chat with like you <laughs> and <laughs> when I go to DC or even Wall Street and things like that. There's, it's kind of remarkable to me, like we're all one country, but, you know, culture and innovation starts in certain pockets and it takes a while to trickle down to frankly the east coast and then it takes a while to trickle down to europe and you know into emerging markets so the world is getting more and more connected but it doesn't there's still a big gap in understanding it's also people who just grew up their whole career like it was in wall street for instance or in dc it's it's hardwired into their firmware to use like a tech analogy um that it's like well the dollar is the currency of the world you know, how, how dare you uh, even challenge that? And it must be a scam if anybody does try to challenge it, right? Look at like, you know, Warren Buffett or the or these people, Jamie Dimon or whatever, it has some comments out there, which it's once you read, reach a certain age, I think, you know, human brains become sort of ossified. It's like, it's hard to accept new ideas. But for people who grew up in tech, it's kind of natural. We're more like digital natives, you know, and of course, you know, the world doesn't need like thousands of currencies. That's another misconception that I see out there. People are like, well, why would there be thousands of private currencies? Like this sounds like it's just everyone's going to lose their money and it's a terrible idea. And I have to kind of explain to them, okay, crypto is money, you know, and, and Bitcoin is kind of this new form of money. Maybe there'll be a couple other forms of money. Like we have, you know, yen and the euro and stuff, but there's not going to be thousands of kinds of money. People are using crypto for all kinds of new things. Like the metaverse and artwork and like new kinds of financial services and tokenizing people's time. And it's it's a hard thing to get the first time you hear it, right? It's like, 
why would people want to tokenize their own time? You know, it doesn't make sense to me, right? And so a lot of, I have to sort of balance the amount of time that we spend at Coinbase. Part, I feel like half my brain, half my job is like to go to DC, to go talk with, you know, traditional finance 1.0 players and just explain and, and be patient and also understand all their concerns because they have many concerns about ransomware and national security and um, all, all kind, you know, the sanctity of the safety of the financial system and how we're going to cause runs on the bank. And like, it's amazing, like the kind of different theories and fears that come out of these other worlds. And then the other half of my time is trying to hang out with people on the cutting edge of crypto, where people like like you and people on, on the team at Coinbase who are honestly like way far they're ahead on this than I am. And I'm trying to understand and stay on the forefront so we can just keep building the future faster and faster and faster. So there's this kind of dynamic where I feel like the regulators are always trying to fight the last war. They're trying to, they're still thinking about crypto how we were thinking about it in 2015 or something. And they're trying to figure out what to do about that. Meanwhile, crypto just needs to keep innovating faster and faster and faster so that we keep building more and more great stuff and help bring those along that aren't quite there yet. And somehow this will all get worked out. It's it's going to be messy, but I'm I'm very optimistic that the US is not going to like throw the throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, there's going to be a lot of fears and consternation about, you know, oh, are, are we losing power in the government and, and all these things? But I'm I'm an optimist at heart. It's going to keep getting built, and freedom is on the frontier. You know, it's interesting again as you describe that. And fifty percent of your time, by the way, you're saying having those types of conversations. Once again, this is Coinbase serving that bridge, yeah. right, between these two worlds, between this 1.0 world and this 2.0 world. And I've got to say, um, crypto needs this so much. Like I feel like, particularly people in the U.S., maybe this year we've started to wake up to the political power that crypto as a cohort might have. Like, oh, there's a lot of us. Oh, we have some capital. Oh, there's this thing called lobbying that we could do. But we still need some like representatives from the industry, the A16Zs of the world, the Coinbases of the world to actually advocate on our behalf and bridge these gaps between like DeFi crypto natives and DC. Is that something you feel Coinbase and you yourself have been you know, called upon to do like you guys put out this uh, this framework which asks for a single crypto czar right so a single regulator a distinct framework so we're not using the how we test we, we actually have a, a framework that applies to crypto digital nations something that empowers holders and fair competition is that your purpose in building out the regulatory framework and are you going to do you plan to continue serving in that role for the crypto natives in DC and the other regulatory bodies. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so if you think about how do we ensure that this industry gets to the next 10x or 100x and just keeps helping people all over the world, how do, how do we get the next billion people access to this technology so they can benefit from it? You know, we have to work on blockchain scalability and all these things. But one of the biggest ones, if not the biggest one, is how do we explain this in a way to the current establishment regulators and everybody, uh, banks and associated with them that this this stuff is here to stay. Yes, there are some risks, but it is a huge net positive for the world. And just patiently explain that in terms that they can understand it. There needs to be these translators, if you will. So Coinbase is playing a big role in that. Uh, we hired a, our chief policy officer who, who used to run that for Goldman Sachs. We've built out a big team of, of policy efforts or policy folks that who, who are going and engaging. A16Z is doing an amazing job here. I have to, my hat is off to them. They've built a huge policy team, put together tons of material, hosted conferences. They're writing you know, legal law review papers that judges read. 
Um, Katie Hahn, who's on our board, is a former DOJ prosecutor. She's just a force of nature. And she and I have had great trips around D.C. Uh, Coinbase is also funding, um, along with a number of other companies, uh, this group called the Crypto Council for Innovation. And it's uh, CryptoForInnovation.org. It's essentially an advocacy group or think tank that is um, going to, you know, do more of this work, but it could do do it as at least a one layer removed from the companies themselves. Um, can go engage with DC and policymakers around the whole world on these issues. So, I think that, you know, we're going to have to add another zero to everything that we're doing here because there's just so many people in so many countries around the world who have start who are starting to think about this and they just don't have all the information in front of them. And so we can help move the needle on some of these people who are on the borderline. Some some people are just going to hate crypto, whether they're on the left or the right. It seems to be a pretty um, bipartisan thing. It's not really a left or right thing. But some of them just really hate it. And aren't gonna, we're not going to change their mind for some reason. Others are on the borderline and we can move their move their minds. And then the other, there's a ton of big crypto advocates as well in D.C. and, and, and Washington. And we need to uh, hug them tight. Brian, while the uh, SEC was coming after the Lend product and sent you guys that letter that basically informed you that if you release the Lend product that the SEC intended to sue you, me and Ryan on the weekly roll-up, we were all gung-ho for Coinbase going toe-to-toe with the SEC. And for a number of reasons. One, like we don't want the SEC to bully us around, but also as an industry, while crypto is very tribal, we're also a complete family, right? So like if the SEC goes after Coinbase, like they're going after us, they're going after all of us. And so maybe it puts Coinbase into an unfortunate position as like they are the, like, the representatives of the crypto industry to maybe a, a little bit too much. But we wanted to see somebody take on the SEC because if it's not Coinbase, then who? And you talked earlier about like it was a coin flip between 50-50 of whether you guys were going to win that battle. And maybe that's not the greatest odds, especially when it comes to, you know, injecting financial capital into paying for these legal bills. But also at the same time, like if it's not Coinbase, the next best biggest company that can take on the SEC are not going to have the same odds as Coinbase. Is that a responsibility that Coinbase even wants to have? And is that a fight that you guys are willing to fight? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think we want that responsibility, but we do have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I agree with you. I think that it would not surprise me if in the coming year or two that it does come to some kind of litigation with the SEC. You know, that's not, by the way, that's not the end of the world, right? If if they're mm -hmm. if they're unwilling to um, put out just clear rules that everybody can follow, um, or if we just fundamentally disagree with the rules that they put out, they haven't really put out any clarity, any, any clarity like that that I've seen, then it is going to ultimately come down to the courts to decide. And that's basically regulation through enforcement, which I think is bad policy. Um, and it's not good for America. But if that's how it's going to end up, then yes, we will engage in litigation. Um, I'd rather pick an 80-20. And I think there's a number of things like that. Um, I think that, you know, we've talked with people like, you know, you know, I talked with the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. They, they sued the SEC five times and won five times. Um, so there's many situations where regulators, I think, overall are good folks that are just trying to do the right thing and they're trying to protect people. And I, I, I really respect what they do. But there's other times where it becomes political. They're overly ambitious. Um, you know, they're, they're just trying to grab turf or they just they're not interpreting what the actual law says fairly. And we have to go to the courts. And so. Uh, 
we're not opposed to doing that when necessary. The thing is, I think, as we've always said on Bankless, this is ultimately a battle for hearts and minds, isn't it, Brian? And so like, we're at the point in the US where we have 10 to 15% of the population who owns a crypto asset, right? Yeah. What happens when that gets to 20, 25, 30%, 40%, right? Is Congress really going to debate whether a pudgy penguin is a security or not? <laughs> or are they just going to let us have our pudgy penguins? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So I, I do think that is our ultimate protection is just onboarding the world. And that's something that, you know, Coinbase is obviously doing as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I think that folks in DC right now are just not quite getting is that tens of millions of Americans, soon to be 50 or 100 million Americans, want to use this stuff. And it's going to be incredibly politically unpopular to go to be anti-crypto. I think event in the next, I don't know, three years, something like that, someone's going to lose an election over this. And then they're really going to realize it. They're like, ooh, don't touch that. That's that's political suicide. And it's really ironic that, you know, some of these regulators are sort of saying, oh, well, we're here to protect, we're here to protect the, the retail investor. And the retail investors are like, go away. We don't want your <laughs> we don't want I find your help. It very, very patronizing. Yes. <laughs> it's incredibly patronizing. I mean, and, and frankly, like I think that the securities laws were created for the right reasons and had good intentions. It's like we wanted to protect people. But it's made me question more and more whether, like, are the securities laws still, should they still be there today? You know, like, if if we had really been following this, um, like, are we actually precluding a whole bunch of wealth creation? Because if, if crypto today was able to create $2 trillion of wealth creation, and what would it have been if the security laws had been more permissive? And like, why is it that if you're, you can only invest in private companies, if you're a accredited investor, you're already a rich person? I never understood that. It's like, it's literally preventing you from getting rich investing in private companies unless you're already rich. It's it's a regressive tax on poor people. So there's so many things about um, the securities laws which I think are just broken and, and not relevant today. And so it may be time to just rethink them. Um, and that's a, that's a policy or a concept that probably nobody on the East Coast is thinking about yet. Um, but the the average U.S. citizen is starting to wonder if these laws still make sense. My brilliant co-host likes to say, you know, sometimes when they say investor protection, what they really mean is incumbent protection. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what's happening. Yes, exactly. Let's let's not forget where a lot of, there's a revolving door between big banks and a lot of uh, financial service regulators. And so whether consciously or not, there is an incentive for them to kind of protect uh, the traditional players. And that's, that's not American. I think that's... Um, that's quasi-nationalizing private companies mm -hmm. and then Im embedding them, you know, with these certain protections from competition. That, that's un-American. And I think it's it's bad for uh, consumers as well. So people are smart. The average citizen is, is starting to realize this. And that's why we want Coinbase to eat all the banks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And as we draw to a close, Brian, this has been just a fantastic discussion. I feel like I see Coinbase's um, you know, strategy much more clearly in your place in the world. That's really what we are looking to understand. I think many in the crypto community were looking to understand. You've articulated it very well. But now maybe we're kind of coming you know, full circle, right? Because we started this with a shot of you in 2012, and you were at this booth with two others from Coinbase when it, this was just a cottage industry. This was tiny. Now, 10 years later, almost 10 years later, this is not a cottage industry. Coinbase, top of the app store. Crypto is big. I mean, we just passed 2 trillion not that long ago. I wouldn't be surprised if we hit 10 trillion in this next cycle. Like That would not surprise me in the least. 
So the first decade of crypto was all about birth, okay? But now we're in a new decade. This is the 2020s. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what you expect to see in crypto for this next decade. You're a long-term thinker. So tell us about the 2020s. What is going to be the theme of the 2020s? And do you have any advice for us for this next decade as we prepare? Yeah, well, I think... If the first decade of crypto was about birth and then people basically trading it, speculating it, um, speculating on it by trading, I think the next decade of crypto is going to be about people using crypto. And so that's actually even more exciting to me because I'm not really a trader at heart. I think that's a good business model and it got a bunch of fiat money into crypto. But we're already seeing it happen with um, NFTs and DeFi and, and the metaverse and all the voting and decentralized identity and you know social media stuff, BitCloud and all this stuff. So. I'm I'm super bullish on the next decade in crypto. I think is going to be people actually using it, and uh, it's just going to get bigger from there. Brian, one of the patterns I see in this industry, and one of the reasons why there's so much innovation, is is that somebody comes into the world of crypto, they build something really really cool, it gains traction, it gains success. That builder, that founder, becomes wealthy and rich. And then they become complacent and lazy, and then somebody else builds something new, and the creative destruction process happens, and the cycle iterates forwards. You seem to be immune from that. You've been here since 2013. Is there a time in this next decade or a time at all where you consider yourself like, oh, like I did it, like I'm done, and I'm going to tap out and When are you going to retire, Yeah, Brian? when are you going to retire, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for saying that. I mean, I... Um, this is a great note to wrap on, actually, because I, you know, I don't have any desire to retire. Um, one of my biggest fears, actually, is that, you know, I had sort of an early insight into crypto and I was like excited about it. Um, and that as Coinbase becomes bigger and I become older, that I just start to lose touch with the latest cool things that are happening. And I eventually become this, you know, I, I would hate to be the the Jamie Diamond, you know, of 10 years or 20 years from now where I, somebody comes into my office is like, all right, there's this new thing you know, AI friends or whatever, you know, some crazy <laughs> idea. And I'm just like, no, that'll, that'll never work. Um, you know, we don't, we don't do that here at Coinbase, you know? And I, I always think about this story, you know, so Steve Wozniak, when he built the first prototype of an Apple computer, well, he, he was an employee at HP and he actually went to his boss at HP and he was like, I think HP should build personal computers. And his, his boss ran it up the chain and people said no. And so he left to found Apple. And that's one of my biggest fears is at Coinbase is like some some engineer on the team will come in and tell me some idea. And I'm like, ah, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so one of the things I've done with a, this project 10% I told you about where 10% of our resources goes to new initiatives, I've made it so there, there's a panel of people. And if you get any one of those people to say yes and champion the project, hmm. we will fund it. And by the way, so in other words, there, there's projects where I have voted no Somebody else on the team, some of them are pretty junior people at Coinbase too, like just very crypto forward engineers and stuff. One of them will say yes and we'll fund it anyway. <laughs> and so um, that's where I'm trying to protect the company from myself. If I'm becoming too too like you know lofty in my thinking or just out of touch, that we will still try new things. And I think that's that's the key to innovation. But if if we fail to do it, then it's the it's the next generation of startups' job to come in and disrupt us. And so that's the paranoia we always got to think about. Brian, this has been absolutely fantastic. We will close it there. Thank you so much for guiding us into your head, why you started Coinbase, where it's going into the future. This has been an excellent conversation. We appreciate it. This was awesome. Thanks, guys, for getting out this content. And I think you're, uh, you're helping shape uh, this next generation of thinkers and uh, participants in the crypto economy. So thanks for doing it.
We appreciate it. We are bringing billions into the bankless movement. Hopefully over the next decade, some actions items for you today. Join that waitlist we we're talking about. That's Coinbase NFT waitlist if you already haven't. Also, Brian mentioned a book. I, I'm a sucker for book recommendations. It's called The Master Switch. We'll include a link in the show notes. Lastly for you, become a triple point consumer of bankless. If you've not, we've got the triple point asset, which is Ether. Triple point consumer means you're subscribed on YouTube, the podcast, also the newsletter. There are three places to describe. As always, risks and disclaimers, guys, none of this has been financial advice. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. You could definitely lose what you put in, but we're headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on the bankless journey. <laughs>